I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to... Yulia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, now, you are a biological oceanographer. What on earth is that? Yes, I joined UBC, I would say, 11 or 10, of 10 years ago, I would say. And um, I study basically ocean and all the organisms that live in, within it. Wow, that's a big field of study. It is quite broad. <laughs> Do you specialize in any kind of organisms? or? Yes, I study zooplankton. And uh, this is a tiny organism, I guess everybody familiar with something like shrimp, which can be a type of the zooplankton. And I specifically focus on the deep ocean, and specifically it's called the mesopelagic zone. So it's on generally between 200 and 1,000 meters below the surface. Oh, wow. Do you actually go down there, like in a submarine, or...? Uh, no, I've actually never been in the sea, that's why I'm a little bit kind of weird. Biological oceanographer, I never had a chance to go on the cruise, uh, which my lab usually go. So I never actually never been at sea, but I do a lot of modeling and I guess more like behind the computer stuff. Great. Is that by choice or just what, the way things work? Yes and no, I kind of like it. I guess my, not my mistake, but uh, my circumstances are that uh, I went to UBC from another field. So, and because of the switch, I, at first I was an international student, which is a bit harder to get permits to go into sea. Mm. And of course, I didn't have that experience or that, uh, that most of the biological students have after completing their undergrad in this field. I don't really, I've never seen a life zooplankton, which kind of uh, very weird until I started my master's. So this kind of prevented me from going to sea just because I'm not very helpful up there. <laughs> and which field did you transfer from? Well, I did quite a lot. So I first did uh, three years of my undergrad back home in Russia, where I studied material engineering, oh, wow. specifically where I measure was in composite materials. Uh, but then when I transferred to Canada, just because I didn't know how the system, educational system worked here, I didn't know that we can choose whatever we like <laughs> to measure in here. So I thought because my undergrad was in chemistry, I will still continue doing the chemistry. So I studied I finished my undergrad in uh, environmental chemistry. Oh, wow. Yeah. Quite the uh, diverse career. Yeah. <laughs> Do you find that you pull on those skills with your work right now? Yeah, I, I couldn't say that whatever I studied was completely useless in whatever I do, because everywhere, where I, it, no matter what field I've been to, you learn so many useful skills. Mm -hmm. Like from chemistry, a lot of analytical skills, like data analysis, proceeding to the details, extensive lab work. I find it's very helpful when you I moved to my master's and I still was using like chemistry to analyze some fish samples. So it's still more helpful to apply this kind of knowledge you learn from that field. Plus it's also helped to see a different perspective because very different disciplines treat uh, the same question in a different way. So I think having a different point of view that comes from the other discipline will help you to actually like excel in the field of study, no matter what you study. 
Absolutely. It, it sounds so counterintuitive that you should do uh, your master's and PhD in a completely different field. But because you have that different perspective, um, you can answer a question that someone who's only studied uh, oceanography their whole career, uh, it may take them weeks or, or months to understand. And you with your chemistry background could get it like that. Yeah, yeah, I find it's always useful to have extra knowledge, I guess, of your And then you're not finished your studies just yet, are you? You're also... Well, I kind of... My final date for my final uh, PhD defense is almost set to January 15th, so it's oh, wow. my last term this year. Congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> Ready to be done? Yes and no. I kind of always enjoy school, so I want to say uh, school was ever hard for me or something that I was like ready to finish and wanted to work. I, I always like study and I like to learn, so I kind of enjoy my time at PhD, so it's a bit sad to be done, but it's also kind of exciting to see what's next. And you also love to teach. You are our TA extraordinaire. Yes, I would never imagine I would end up teaching because my whole life I was like, oh, I like animals, I would like to work with animals, I don't like people, I don't like talking, I'm a very um, introverted person, I would say, so uh, talking, communicating in general, I would say it was my favorite thing to do. So I would never would uh, thought I will end up being a teacher or like having any interest in teaching, yeah. But uh, thanks to my supervisor who always encouraged our labs to do extra than just writing a thesis that I tried to teach and I really got into it, yeah. Well, I know that you are much beloved in the department uh, for all that teaching and uh, your students love you as well. Yeah, I guess I was glad that I always have a chance to work with such amazing instructors around me and I learned so much from them that it was very easy to apply what I saw or observed in their teaching to what I do. And I think students here, a lot, I almost always teach either first year students, which I find very the most interesting part of teaching because they're just coming fresh new from the university, they still have that passion and, you know, excitement about life at the beginning. So I find it's very, like, encouraging to do those kind of courses. Absolutely. I'm going to go back to your personal background. Um, why did you make the shift into oceanography? Why didn't you stay with chemistry? Oh, it's, it's quite a long story. I think it all started when I was five. And, like, the background, I have identical twin. Oh. But she's not in Canada, she's still back home, but uh, we're always, like, as a twins grew up together and it was a uh, Soviet Union time. So nothing was available like double or copy or something, right? Every item was like a book or anything was unique. Back then we really like horses with my sister and my mom went to the store and bought us one book of horses because there was like no nothing else left. And we start fighting with my sister who gets to keep the book. And my mom got angry, went back and bought another book about sharks. So <laughs> since five years old, I was really interested in sharks. And uh, I guess uh, being back home in Russia, where like I'm from Moscow, it's quite far away from any oceans to say. So I've never actually dreamed or knew that there is an opportunity to do something like oceanography. So I just went to whatever university was the closest to my house, which is, was like the chemistry university. That's what I studied, but in summers, we usually, me and my sister went to Europe to do some kind of volunteering conservation work. So we worked with um, sea turtles in Greece, we worked with uh, sharks in Philippines and Honduras. So that's wow. how I still continue like being involved in kind of marine conservation. And then when I started doing, I think after I moved to Canada, my instructors, 
um, at my previous university really encouraged me to pursue my passion and they told me that I can basically do whatever I like or whatever I'm interested in. So indeed at first when I was trying to look for graduate school, I was uh, trying to do the research, uh, doing the, like something related to shark conservation. But unfortunately I was an international student and funding are very limited, especially in the field that is quite narrow. So most of the um, professors didn't want to take me just because they don't have enough funding for me. And also my background is chemistry, not very convincing tool to um, say a college professor to take me as their student to study sharks, right? Which is pretty unrelated. So this kind of various didn't really uh, help me to get the job in the conservation, but I thought, okay, I like ocean, I like sharks, I can do something more or less closer to them. So that's what I thought, okay, I will probably study fish at first. And then I find my supervisor, my current supervisor, with Jennifer Homov. And he was doing research with, on salmon. So I thought, okay, that <laughs> sounds close enough. So I just started my kind of, my uh, moved into the area of the oceanography. Wonderful. That is quite the, the story. <laughs> Did your sister go into horses? Uh, no, she, well, she also liked nature, so she's now a landscape architecture. Oh, wow. So what what's your thesis on? So now I'm actually switching again, right? My master's was studying salmon. So now I'm actually moving into zooplankton. And what I do, I basically study the deeper part of the ocean, mm -hmm. which is surprisingly even less investigated than the surface of the Mars, which I find hilarious sometimes to make this connection. We know more about the Mars surface than we know about our ocean. And uh, I'm basically trying to model how many organisms we have in the deep ocean and what the biomass we have. And it is important because nowadays, as you heard probably a lot, that global fisheries are collapsing just to, just to uh, due to decline of the fish in the surface water. So a lot of fisheries are actually moving down to the depths. But when you don't know nothing about how much is there, you don't know how much you can catch, mm -hmm. right, without ruining the ecosystem. And my job is kind of to fill in some of the gaps in this knowledge, to, just trying to provide some sort of number of how much we would think is there or what we expect to see there. And how much do you think there is down there? Oh, it's <laughs> just got my first numbers last week. So um, I wouldn't like give exact number yet just because I want to confirm whatever I calculated is uh, what I would like to present <laughs> for the public. But um, uh, the, this deeper part of the ocean is actually contain quite a lot of resources. Recent papers, for example, published that there are almost one gigaton of mesopelagic fishes. It's just a bit smaller fish, so I guess not the typical, I guess, what we expect, like salmon. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of that, but the uncertainty on these estimates are huge. It's not like one or two gigatons, it's like from million tons to 19 gigatons kind of error bar. Oh. So, yeah, those kind of estimates are still not very precise, just because we, we very little we know about them. Well, we'll narrow it down eventually. <laughs> yes. <laughs> We have to take a first step somewhere. <laughs> in your studies, uh, aside from the work that you can't talk about just yet because it's uh, still being processed, uh, have you made any discoveries that you'd care to share? Oh, discoveries? Even personal discoveries where you thought that was I guess, really cool? Um, because I also do a lot of, I guess, extracurricular stuff. 
Um, I had a chance to work with uh, various departments on our campus, and specifically what I guess I, I'm very proud and I'm happy I joined the program, uh, program on Equity, Inclusion and Diversity program at UBC. So I'm working with faculty of chemistry, biology and physics, and I'm helping them to analyze the data for first year courses. Mm. And I think it was very eye-opening experience because uh, based on my background from Russia, I guess um, the diversity of students that you see here in Canada is not that high back home. And for example, I would never see somebody with a person with disabilities attending the regular classes. So um, having a different mindset or how this kind of issues is perceived and talked about in Canada, I guess, uh, it probably can... Uh, generalize it right for the whole country is I guess very eye-opening experience just because I've never even thought about that you know that everybody is not equal because I guess all the Soviet Union education right everybody equal no matter what your background right what's your standing you're like everybody treated the same which is what the definition of equality while in Canada it's completely different view on the things and where you have to consider where the people are starting with right and how to helped the students excel, which was very interesting for me. And also like learning all the teaching approaches, different like opinions on how to how different professors or instructors receive the teaching, I guess was very, uh, uh, very intriguing for me to see. Excellent. I'm always curious how Canada um, stacks up against other uh, countries in terms of just the, the cultural difference and um, experiences. Um, I, I know you don't do a lot of field work, so I, I usually like to ask how is field work different, but uh, it's interesting to hear the educational um, institutional differences too. Yeah, I would say it's a huge gap between what I experienced back home and here in Canada. I wouldn't say one is maybe better than the other, but it's completely different approaches, for example, but home, I guess... Uh, my university was a little bit behind, like uh, we never had any computers in our university, no internet, right? So everything was a classic, like chalk on the blackboard, you know, you're taking notes, all exams are oral, and you know, like moving here, I was very pleased that uh, the instructor can only test you on the material they actually give you, <laughs> that you will never see something that you never saw before on your exam. <laughs> Oh, yeah, that would be terrifying. <laughs> yeah, but like, it also trains you, like, the, like whenever I talk about this kind of difference with my friends, uh, they're always like scared to know that they're like oral exams, but it actually helps you a lot, like moving and studying to Canada, because now everything is becoming so much easier, you know, here, oh, you have office hours you can attend, like they're giving you all the information. So it was for me, I guess, a bit easier jump to adjust to the Canadian system, just because you have that diverse experience where you have very creative and adaptive to always changing conditions, so yeah. Great. Yeah, there are pluses and benefits to every system yeah. and um, experiencing multiple systems means that you can pick and choose yes, uh, what you're going to use in your day-to-day -day life. You are cl clearly very passionate about your work. Um, what's in the future for you? What are you going to do once you've done your PhD or have you looked that far ahead? Um, I, yeah, it's been a bit of a journey, I guess, now, so uh, I think I really love teaching, so I'd like to stay and teach um, what field, again, is a bit of a um, question for me yet, because recently I got very passionate about programming mm -hmm. and um, uh, teaching uh, how to code, 
So I've been working with Department of Statistics with um, Master of Data Science program. And I really love this kind of approach to statistics and uh, data analysis and the way of thinking. So I got very interested in that aspect. So I even had an interview with um, uh, with the department for the assistant professor position. So I got shortlisted and uh, like went to the final round of the interviews. So um, I think I would love to have some um, kind of uh, position like that. But I also like to, I would love to stay with our department just because there are so many amazing uh, people you have to work with. And uh, I love what I, I've already been teaching and teaching at our department. And I think there are a lot of opportunities to create new courses that I find very interesting or like to design a new programs, which I also were given a chance to do in the past. That's why I find it quite a creative place to work with. You clearly, um approach your work with a very interdisciplinary uh, mindset. I guess, yeah. <laughs> I just don't have any other, I guess, uh, view on these things. So it's a bit easier for me to apply whatever you saw in different disciplines, right, to merge it together. Well, and that seems to be the wave of the future with science. Oh, yeah, definitely. Now, everybody, right? Hardly any work you do is only within single discipline, right? It's all the interconnected connected now. Yeah, you're the wave of the future. <laughs> Um, it's clear that you love what you do, but I'm curious, what is the best part of your work? What really gets you up in the morning and gets you to say, we? I guess, uh, in general, I really like learning something new. I find that's why, for me, I guess school was never a big struggle, just because I'm really uh, enjoying learning new things. So for me, I like this kind of challenges. I like some complicated situations that... Uh, you face daily life. That's why I think the under, uh, graduate school is so fun to work with because you never know what the next day brings or what your data will show the next day. So I find it's um, quite intriguing just to try and solve the puzzles, right? To make it connect. That's a great attitude. I wish everyone had that. <laughs> or, or I wish everyone could keep that attitude through grad school because I know that. Uh, it can burn out a little bit toward the end. <laughs> I totally agree. I think that's why doing so many other different things is actually helping. Yes, it maybe don't provide you enough time or as much time as you would like to do your thesis, but I find that uh, because you have to do so many different things, it's actually keep you motivated too. And when you shift back to your thesis, you're not that tired of that, right? Because you've been spending some time doing some other things. Absolutely. Now I have the flip question. Um, what's the worst or the most challenging part of your work? Well, it's like, it's interesting question. So challenging. I think at first maybe adjusting to Canada was a bit harder for me. Just, I guess it's normal because um, I never even spoken uh, English back home. So yeah. when I moved to Canada, I could write and understand people, but sometimes you cannot say things. So sometimes even when professor will ask you a question, I knew the answer, but it was in, in Russian language, so I couldn't even answer that. So some sort of kind of frustration builds up because you cannot even like produce something that you know, you know, but just because of the language barrier. But I want to say it was like, um, totally that stopped me from doing things, but it, it was a little bit, I guess, um, uh, so a challenge for me to overcome and also I guess personality wise I know that <clears throat> especially systems here are highly uh, tailored towards extroverted people who like to communicate and mm -hmm. be out there and I 
really not this type of person. I like to stay back or work like behind the scene most. So I find uh, that finding how you can um, fit your personality and make it work for you, no, even though you're not like out there open or outspoken, that's also, I guess, a small challenge that you have to find the way how to work with it. That's a really interesting observation. And you're absolutely right. Um, certainly, uh, most of Western society glorifies the um, the extroverted personality uh, and allows the introverts to fade into the background and um, not always get the uh, recognition that they deserve. Um, that's a very interesting point, and I enjoy that you made that. <laughs> uh, and also, the language barrier um, would be huge. I mean, it's not even like you can write it down and have the other person guess. Uh, there have been times when I've been trying to communicate with people in um, French or Spanish or Italian, and if I write it down, uh, they can recognize the familiar roots and kind of understand what I'm trying to say. Uh, I don't even know where to start with Cyrillic. <laughs> it's gorgeous, but I have no idea what it means. Um, this kind of leads into the next question. Uh, do you identify as belonging to any underrepresented or uh, marginalized communities? And if so, how has that impacted your uh, studies or career? You mentioned you're uh, an immigrant. Um, yeah, I think it's the only, I guess, marginalized group I can identify myself with and that can affect maybe on my school. The rest things, I think I'm very fortunate. I guess I never had to struggle with paying tuition fees, right? I never had struggled to uh, find a place to live. So in the sense, I think I was very fortunate enough. I never had like, any learning disability that would prevent me from having something or I would experience some difficulty with school. So I find that I guess I, I was quite lucky that um, my whole like uh, learning process was quite smooth in that sense. Excellent. I'm glad for that. And you're clearly uh, paying it forward by working on all this uh, diversity work. Yeah, that's why I find that I've had to work on this kind of features because this is not the things I experienced myself. So the way I see school, like for me, like, oh, it's so easy. Why are you guys struggling, you know? But like learning about like how others perceive that, like help you change your opinion on things and like see it from a different perspective. You're clearly doing the hard work. Thanks. <laughs> Do you find that oceanography is open and really welcoming, or is it more closed off and insular? Or is it both? Because both can exist in the same reality. Yeah, it's interesting question because I think my experience is very different from um, the rest of the groups. For example, I would, I would like, although I'm a biological oceanographer, I would say I'm more related to fisheries because first I used to work with fish, right? And all the research we're doing, I would say, are very interconnected with uh, area of fisheries, right? Where a lot of even like lab groups were predominantly male dominant, right? However, with my supervisor, it's a completely different experience. We don't have any guys at all in our lab. <laughs> so whenever like, you know, people talk about the experiences sort of things, I cannot say I experienced that personally. So it was, uh, yeah, I guess like the environment I was in is quite different. Even with a lot of um, people are pointing out that a lot of professors are mostly, for example, white and male. Again, the people I work with are uh, usually of diverse, diverse backgrounds. I work with a lot of female instructors, so I would not say I experienced that, what the people are talking about. But I can see maybe if we generalize it in general, there, there is still some um, sort of um, inequality that exists in that. 
It's funny, when I first started here, I expected this entire department to be just old, white, straight men, uh, and, and young, white, straight men. <laughs> and um, I was very shocked at um, how diverse, in some ways, it is, how, uh, how many women were in positions of power here, and um, how many of our faculty were, were female. Um, yeah, and it's amazing. Um, I wouldn't have expected that, that your entire group was made up of women. Yes, yes. <laughs> so that's great. <laughs> Um, now, one thing that you know we've all had to deal with, regardless of our, our sex or gender and um, and our race, uh, it has been the pandemic. Um, how has it impacted your work, or hasn't impacted your work at all? Yeah, I guess in a sense I'm lucky, and pandemic wasn't a tough time for me. Just first of all, I'm introverted, so having it to work from home or like <laughs> be a little bit in your own bubble is a good thing for me. Also, I don't have any field work for my uh, graduate school and my PhD. So I wasn't really affected that it was slowing me down in that sense, because all I need is a computer right, to mm -hmm. run my models. So in the sense, I wouldn't say it was a tough time. I guess it's affected my teaching a little bit, just because there are certain things that you have to do in person. For example, I always was teaching first year labs. And uh, although I know there are a lot of work and improvement being done, how to convert labs online, I find it still so, it works, students like it, but I think that it actually is not a good thing just to remove that hands-on experience the student get because if you don't catch up in the first years, the, the experience that they will have, uh, maybe not in our department, but I find like chemistry or biology can affect them a lot. And being a chemist myself, I know how important the lab work is. So. Yeah, it's not like you have hydrochloric acid at home. Yeah, that's true. Yes. <laughs> There are only so many baking soda vinegar uh, experiments you can do <laughs> in a first year course. You mentioned that most of your work is done uh, at home and you're modeling. Uh, are you processing information that other people are collecting or do you have sensors up in the ocean which are gathering data for you or how does your data come to you? Yeah, I guess the challenge of my work is that nowadays a lot of data is collected by sensor, but what kind of data I'm working with is uh, biomass of the organism, so I basically need to know how many kilograms, let's say, are in the water. And this kind of um, data is usually updated by catches using nets. Okay. So I basically collect every published literature that is available uh, on uh, whether when uh, researchers will report where they caught, how much and what kind of organisms they recorded. And also, there are, I guess, most of the data is actually very hard to find just because a lot of people do not post the raw data. And they will post like a map of the organism, but it's impossible to extract the data from that in an efficient way. So I'm like, I have a lot of sources of unpublished uh, uh, data that some researchers are sharing with me. And I basically go to like collect every single published or research article that is available online as of today, just to get this kind of um, information. Excellent. <laughs> so you're trawling the uh, unpublished tomes, yes. <laughs> to use, I guess, a fishing term. <laughs> um, if anyone's listening right now and they want to follow in your footsteps, uh, what advice would you have for them? What uh, courses or experience um, should they uh, take or, or pursue? Yeah, I guess uh, I can relate a lot to the uh, students or uh, uh, people who are not sure what they want to do in the future. 
And I guess my whole background is switching from one field and another is a good example where I wouldn't say I had a uh, distinct goal, how usually people describe you put a goal and you go right through it and trying to reach it. I always kind of my interest and passion, I always was shifting from my area and another. And I can say that no matter what I do, I can always find things that are interesting to me. And I always think, okay, well, like oceanography, I love it. I can see myself doing oceanography. Chemistry, yes, I like it. I can do chemistry. So I think I can relate a lot to this kind of students saying that it's okay not to have a set goals. And I feel a lot of students nowadays are very stressed that they don't really know what to do. And I think um, by doing or trying a lot of different fields can actually simplify your uh, knowledge of the area and also kind of get idea what kind of things you like or what kind of things you will never would like to do in your in like in any other profession mm -hmm. and maybe also uh, I would say I, I would uh, classify myself as a person with very low self-esteem I will never say any good things about myself um, and I guess it's also at, at the beginning was preventing me from trying new things because especially like I guess also coming from the different areas wherever there is a job opening that I would love to do I always thought oh but I'm not qualified or I'm not really suited for that because I've never done it myself I guess I would like to encourage everybody to just still apply and try to do it because I guess I was very lucky I got so many positions because I just applied right and they talked to me they learned about my interest and there are a lot of People nowadays are more accepting that you're coming from a completely different background and they uh, help you learn the fields and like move into that. So I find it's, um, it took a while just to overcome that kind of knowledge. Oh, I'm not good enough for that, right? I should not even try it. Yeah. That's great. That's wonderful advice. Um, sometimes having a goal can blind you to opportunities that are right in front of you. And um, you can miss some really low-hanging fruit, uh, especially when, again, you bring a different perspective to a field where everyone has the same perspective. Um, you can be the breakout star <laughs> just by having your uh, different skill set. Yep. Definitely. And you by far are a breakout star here at EOS. <laughs> I've heard that many times. So no need to have low self-esteem. Uh, we all love you. Um, for you, what was the course that changed your tra uh, trajectory? Uh, it's, it's, I guess it's a progression of courses. So, for example, from back home, uh, although I was studying in the university, studying chemistry, I always thought I hated chemistry afterwards, and I would never would like to do something like that. But coming to Canada, I had an amazing first instructor that was teaching analytical chemistry that changed, I guess, my whole perspective of the field. I guess um, uh, I was very lucky with all the instructors I um, experienced in Canada um, that uh, it got me interested in the science and the, like I received a lot of encouragement from many other faculty members back um, in that university that encouraged me to do the grad school. So I wouldn't say it's a particular course, but rather than experience where you have to opportunity to work with the professors, like talk to them. Mm -hmm. and hear the experience or like they just like push you to do something that you never thought of it was very eye-opening unfortunately at UBC I hardly any, took any courses because when I moved to UBC I already started doing master degree but I was teaching courses so I find that every course is there to teach it quite opening like and there are a couple courses that I teach every term so I probably already did like seven years of uh, teaching uh, teaching it for like 
two consecutive terms. So, uh, and it seems like, you know, it's becoming boring at some point, but every single term you do, you learn something new, right? You like deal with some different problems and like, um, I guess learning also from students I find quite interesting because no matter what, you still learn something new every, every day for them. Absolutely. You mentioned that you had some really inspiring uh, profs back in Russia. Um, I'm curious, who would you uh, say was your, or were your main um, inspirators? I don't think that's a word, but let's say it is. <laughs> it depends on the field, right? Because now with my oceanography, I think my supervisor is quite inspiring. Evgeny like, always treats us like a small family so and encourages us to do that many things. I guess I'm very lucky that my supervisor never like very pushy or like say you have to do like that and that. He actually let us explore our own past, which makes it very inspirational. And I guess his career path, he, he also moved to different countries, right? He also Russian, then he lived in South Africa and taught there and moved here. I kind of can relate to the uh, similar kind of career paths I'm having. In terms of chemistry, yes, I have one. I, I guess I have a lot of amazing teachers from a chemistry field, but I also get attributed after moving to Canada. Uh, the whole approach is very different where instructors actually talk to students, which, <laughs> which is always amazed me. So I guess like the experience I have is a little bit like brightened up by completely different like experiences I was having. And then I have a lot of mentors. I wouldn't say they're my instructors, but uh, I work on different projects. For example, I'm part of distance education team at our department. So I work with, uh, probably six or seven professors who teach at our department distance education courses. And I would say each one of them was so inspiring. And you can, I actually learned a ton from working with them, seeing how they uh, work, how they think, how they like their passion for students or like how to make the education uh, courses and like design the courses in a better way. So I think um, you kind of take from everybody, you know, a little bit of things like, um, I worked with Michael Lipson in our department mm -hmm. um, and I taught some program that we designed together. It's Vancouver summer program. And again, just because he let us teach ourselves, you know, be responsible for what kind of content we created, how we deal with kind of problems. I think uh, you kind of take pieces from everybody, you know, you work with and just incorporate it in what you do. That's great. That seems to be a, a recurring theme. You take pieces of the various fields that you work in and uh, inspiration from the various uh, people that you work with. Yeah, and I guess it's just because, yeah, I'm coming from completely different, I guess, background or experience, right? So there is nothing to build on for me. So they like to borrow from others and learn from others. <laughs> Wonderful. You're, you're a blank slate and, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or were, and now you're quite full of <laughs> information. Still way to go, but moving on, yeah. Speaking of a ways to go, um, I'm curious, uh, you're at the beginning of your career. Uh, what would you like to have as your professional legacy when you uh, end your career, when you eventually retire? Oh, that's a perfect <laughs> question. I can't see myself yet in the career. I guess I would like to um, influence lives of many students. Uh, I kind of already have a little bit of this kind of experience because I also do part-time tutoring and I work with a, a 
high school students who are coming to university and it's always glad to see those students like getting in the university, going to the career and they still keep in touch and talk to you. So I find this kind of the most uh, enlightening or like the most bright things that you can think of when you teach somebody, right? Just to see the students excel and maybe even like surpass you in many other ways. I think most of my students already graduated <laughs> before me. <laughs> I think I finished my PhD. So I think this kind of thing just to um, make a difference, even in a small one in lives of whatever students you teach on a daily basis. I think that will be the most uh, encouraging uh, things we need to have as a legacy. Wonderful. And again, you've already achieved that. <laughs> Uh, many times over, I'm sure more than you know. <laughs> uh, that's your personal legacy and where you're uh, going to. Uh, but I'd like you to look at your field. Uh, let's choose um, oceanography because <laughs> you've got quite a few fields. Um, where do you see biological oceanography going in the future? Um, I know that a field can change completely, um, especially these days. Uh, a field that a person enters at the beginning of their career can be unrecognizable by the time they retire. So where's biological oceanography going and what advice do you have for young people to anticipate some of these changes and get ahead of the curve? Yeah, I think it's um, very important to embrace the multidisciplinary approach of that field. I think especially now um, in my work, for example, while doing my research, I totally face that kind of lack of knowledge in certain areas, for example, computational aspects of the work or statistical training that I've never had the chance to obtain during my previous years of study. So I find that um, it's very important to train the new um, undergraduate students to actually have uh, not just like, you know, pure oceanography knowledge of the field. I mean, it, it is very important and essential to have that basic understanding of how our ocean works, right, of how the Earth is working. But it's also very important to incorporate all these different aspects of like statistical knowledge, right, how to do the analysis. Probably what um, I'm also quite interested recently from teaching um, at the Master of Data Science program is uh, learning all these new machine learning techniques and um, the supervised learning algorithm, which I think is quite powerful tool and can help a lot with um, exploring different trends trends in the data, because nowadays you're collecting all more and more data, right? And you need a powerful, effective tools to analyze these kind of things. And we're not like working with biological data, which is quite um, not a, um, not very uh, clean data per se, because I, I guess that's also the funny experience I have from the chemistry, right? When you um, prepare some analytical technique, you build that analytical curve, uh, standard curve, and your R squared is like 0.99, right? And it's already considered bad, or like 0.97, I already deduct marks on the left just because it's not ideal. And you come here and you get something with so much variability and it's already 0.4 and they still are perfect, there is a relationship, <laughs> I guess that's kind of, um, different perspective on the things, right? So I think all this useful techniques that are being developed by, for example, faculty of statistics and computer science can be easily and more readily integrated in the field of uh, oceanography that can improve it. Yeah, I suppose gathering your data from a lab setting versus gathering it from the um, wild world of, of nature, <laughs> you uh, can't expect the same precision. Yeah, completely different thing. And plus working with biological organs that per se are quite different, right? Mm -hmm. 
it was like between you and me, right? It's probably more different, right? That you all see well. <laughs> but having that chemistry background, you probably strive for more um, precision. Whereas <laughs> yeah, if you come from a natural history background, you'd say, well, yeah, of course, <laughs> it's wildly variable. <laughs> yeah. This way, you're pushing pushing the naturalists forward too. So, <laughs> excellent. Yulia, those are all the questions I have for you for today. Um, is there anything I missed or anything you want to add before I let you go? Um, not that I can think of. Okay. Well, thanks for sitting down with me today. Thank you uh, for inviting me. Thanks for sharing your knowledge and uh, your stories and your enthusiasm and just your joy. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me, and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast, or listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week here on Earth.